You can have a seat. You can turn to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at Matthew 26 and 27 this morning. Well, here's a little known fact about me. I grew up, spent most of my childhood in the 80s, so my favorite TV show growing up, bar none, was the A-Team. I came home from school every day, just couldn't wait to hear that theme song kick in and hear, if you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. And we had these four incredible actors, greatest actors ever. You got Face, you got Murdoch, you got B.A. Baracus, and you have right down there in the middle, Hannibal. And what did he say with a big old cigar in his mouth towards the end of every episode? I love it when a plan comes together. And that's the best part of the whole show, is they would have some overly complex, elaborate, risky plan to help someone in need. And it was just fascinating to watch how this plan came together. Well, that's this morning. We are going to watch a plan come together. Actually, the most elaborate, complex, risky plan in the history of the human race. An incredible plan come together as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so, let's pick up the story. In Matthew chapter 26, we're going to begin with the part of the story where Jesus was betrayed. So you may be familiar with this, but let's look at it again. Look at chapter 26, and let's start reading in verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we find out later, it's actually Peter, reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus is betrayed by one of his own, by, by a disciple, by Judas. Now, usually when a person is betrayed, it comes as a surprise. So think of Force Awakens and Kylo Ren and Han Solo. I think maybe a number of us kind of saw that coming. We kind of thought that was probably going to happen, but clearly Han did not. I mean, look at the surprise, the shock on his face. Usually betrayal is a complete surprise, but in the garden it wasn't. In Jesus' case, this was not a surprise. He was not lured into a trap. Notice he's, he's not helpless here. Th- these 12 legions of angels he added up, that's 72,000 angels that are standing ready to strike at any moment. And so Jesus, he's not surprised. He saw it coming. He has a massive army at his beck and call. So why does he allow this to happen, this, this betrayal to happen? Well, he, he tells you. 
right there in verse 54, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say, it must happen this way? What Jesus is telling you is this was all part of the plan. The, the, the cross had been planned from the very beginning. And that's what I want to look at first this morning. The plan of the cross. The plan of the crucifixion of Jesus actually goes all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible. So turn there. You can leave your finger in Matthew, but we're going to start with Genesis 1. So go all the way back to the very far left of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. The death of Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. The story of the cross begins in, in the garden, in paradise. That's where the first part of this story, of this plan, plays out. So you're probably at least somewhat familiar with what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates a perfect world, and at the center of this perfect world is a perfect garden, and God places in this perfect garden the pinnacle of his creation, us, human beings. And we meet us, we meet humanity, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. So look there. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then look at the very end of chapter one. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. So God creates this this perfect world and places us in it. And, and we are unlike anything else in creation. There's nothing else in creation that is made in the image of God. That's unique to humanity. Now, in the image of God, that's a, that's a family phrase. To be made in the image means that you are part of the family of God. It would be accurate to say that Luke and Gracie are made in my image. Because they're, they're my children. They are like me in profound ways. Actually, Luke, you pretty much see Luke and you think Blake. We look, he looks exactly like I did at his age. So when it tells us that we're made in the image of God, it means we are like God in a way that is not true of any other created thing. Cows, dogs, cats, none of them are made in the image and likeness of God. We're made in the image of God, it tells us, so that we can rule the world for God. Now, here's a a misconception that so many Christians in this country have. They think that the goal of the Christian life is to get to heaven. No, it's not. That's actually not nearly enough for God. He has much bigger plans for you than just to get you to heaven. That's only the littlest bit. God's plan for you is to rule the universe. That's why you were designed to rule all of God's creation on God's behalf. That's why he made you like him in his image so that you could be his rulers, his kings, his queens over all that he had made. We're told in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. You were not created just to go to heaven when you die. 
You were created to rule the universe as God's image bearer. So you're made in the image of God to rule God's creation. You were also made in the image of God so that you could know and walk with God as your father. That's not true of anything else. Cows cannot have a relationship with God. That's not ever going to be possible for them. You can. You were created to know God personally, to walk with God face to face. We're actually, we're told this amazing thing, Genesis chapter three, God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Literally, God in, in, in a human looking form walked down through the trees with Adam and Eve. They had a talk with him just like you were talking to your best friend the other day. That's what it was like for them. That's them talking to God. They could ask him anything and he would just tell them whatever they wanted to know. They had a face-to-face relationship with God because that's what you were designed to have. A personal friendship with the creator of the universe. You were made in his image so that you could know him and walk with him. There was no barrier between God and man. No barrier between heaven and earth in the beginning. It was absolutely perfect. Sadly, that didn't last long. That incredible beginning came to a crashing end very quickly. Genesis chapter 3, look there. So after we've begun in the paradise, tragedy strikes. Look at Genesis chapter 3. You're familiar with the story. Let me point out some key things for you though. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We learn later in scripture, this isn't just a snake. This is Satan, God's enemy inhabiting this creature. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was delight to the eyes and that, there was a, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now there's so much we could say here. This is worth a whole sermon on its own. The key that I want you to see, what is the root of all sin? It's pride. It's pride. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They're given the entire earth to rule and yet it isn't enough. What do they want? They want to be God. They're done being creatures. They want to be equal to the creator. That's the root of this temptation. It's the root of all sin. Pride strikes and Adam and Eve take the apple and they eat. They break the one command, only one rule out of the entire earth. God said, you can have it all, just not this one. They break the rule. They rebel. Sin enters the human race at this point. And with sin come a lot of things that Adam and Eve were not counting on. So when sin comes, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is not about nakedness. There's nothing wrong with nakedness. Nakedness here is a symbol of their shame. They feel exposed to one another and to all the world. They feel regret. They feel humiliated by the sin that they've committed. And so they try in vain to sew together leaves to hide themselves. The clothing is just a vain attempt to cover up their shame. So now humanity knows shame. They never knew what that was until this moment. God hasn't even showed up yet. And shame comes 
instantly the moment that they sinned. Next verse, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Not only do they get shame, but they get fear. They would not have even known what this is until it happened. They never had anything to be afraid of. They never woke up in the middle of the night afraid of anything. Completely foreign feeling. They sin and instantly they get shame and fear. What else do they get? Well, jump down to verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the entrance of death into the human race. It's quite possible, it's likely that animals had died before this, plants had died before this, but not humans. You were not designed to die. God wanted to protect you from that experience. But Adam and Eve lose that protection in this moment. And now death becomes part of the human condition. So far we've got some bad things. We've got shame, we've got fear, we've got death. But here's the worst of all. The worst thing that Adam and Eve get because of their sin is separation. Look at verse 24. So he, that is God, drove the man out of the garden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They're kicked out of the garden, and it's really not about the garden. You see, the garden was the place where God walked on earth. It was the place where God was, where you could see God face to face, where you could have a friendship with God, where you could walk with God in the cool of the day. But now they're kicked out. They can't go back to the garden. At this moment in human history, a barrier, a veil comes down between God and humanity. Now, why does that happen? Why is this barrier dropped between God and humanity? Because we're told in Psalm 5, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. It's not because God is fickle and just decides he doesn't like Adam and Eve anymore. It's because God is holy. He's, he's righteous. He's good. He's loving. He's perfect. He is so perfect, in fact, that he cannot be with sin. He cannot have a face-to-face relationship with evil. It's not possible for God, in a sense, to be in the same room with sin. And so Adam and Eve must leave. They must leave the presence of the garden. That's true even with the most righteous people you can think of in all of human history with the exclusion of Jesus. Think about the really righteous people in the Old Testament. Who's at the top of the list? Maybe like a guy like Moses. Incredibly righteous man, good man, obeyed God, led the people out of slavery in Egypt. You think if any God could have a face-to-face relationship with God, it would be a man like Moses. And yet when Moses in the book of Exodus asked God, God, let, let me see your glory. Here's what God says. You cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. That was not the, the intent. That was not what God designed in the garden. Adam and Eve saw his face. They walked with him through the trees in the garden in the cool of the day. 
But now no man can see God because sin has entered the picture. And that sin separates us from God. At at the end of Genesis 3, it's like if you know world history, World War II, we were allies with the Soviet Union. The United States and the Soviet Union worked together to defeat Hitler. But like right after the war, what happened? We became enemies. We became hostile. And, And there was this barrier that descended. We literally, we call it the Iron Curtain that came down in Europe. It was symbolized by an actual wall made out of concrete that divided the city of Berlin into two halves because what were formerly friends were now enemies. Well, that is what happened between humanity and God. A barrier that fell and separated humanity from God and it was actually a literal barrier in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament temple, they created this really thick curtain that hung from the ceiling all the way to the floor and surrounded the Holy of Holies, which was the place on earth where God's glory dwelt. There was this thick curtain that surrounded the Holy of Holies. You couldn't see through it. You, you couldn't even come close. It wasn't like one of those that you kind of part and peek through. No, really heavy curtain. You weren't allowed to look through it. You weren't allowed to go through it. Actually, there was only one person allowed to go through that curtain on one day a year. It was the high priest. He got to go through the curtain on the day of atonement. And if he didn't perform every ritual right beforehand, God would kill him on the spot. That curtain represented the separation that, that ensued between God and humanity the moment we sinned. There was a curtain that fell that, that separated us off from God. And so humanity now has shame and fear and death and separation from God. It really is pretty hopeless at the end of chapter 3 unless you see the promise in verse 15. It's right here in in what seems like the very worst news. Tragedy has struck, and yet God doesn't leave us here. He gives us a promise. This is actually the first promise of the cross. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go all, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So far, this is all about snakes and humans. It's about a curse that fell on literal snakes. And I, I don't really honestly understand the curse. My son has asked me, so did like snakes have legs and walk around before this curse? Because how do they now crawl in the dust? I have no idea. I don't know. I do know that clearly this does describe the relationship we have with snakes today. We don't like them. They don't like us. Pretty much simple as that. But then things change. At the very end of, church, of verse 15, the pronouns shift, and we're no longer talking about snakes and generic humans. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, not serpents in general, but you, the power behind this snake, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's singular. It's not all humans, it's one human. One male descendant of Eve shall bruise you, not all snakes, you Satan, on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel and this is the first promise of God's plan this elaborate plan where God fixes all that we had broken it begins right here one simple little verse God promises that a human being will crush our enemy this you you crush a snake on the head the snake dies so this is a death blow satan will be defeated all he brings with him sin and death will be defeated by one male human being but he will be bruised on the heel and what does it mean to be bruised on the heel well if it's a poisonous snake what's going to happen to you 
You're going to die. This is before the anti-venom existed. These are dual death blows. Both Satan and the male child would die. This is the first promise of the cross. So now we know a male human being will die to defeat sin and Satan and death and set us free. Unfortunately, throughout the entire Old Testament, we find that generation after generation of God's people really prefers to align themselves with the serpent rather than conquer the serpent. Every human being, even the best of them, Moses, David, Elijah, they give in to sin. They're, they're traitors to God's kingdom. They're in bed with the enemy. They, they can't conquer the enemy. Human after human fails to obey God, instead gives in to sin. And so by the end of the Old Testament, what we see is God, God already knew this. He's not surprised by this. God knew the only way to fix this is to do it himself. He's going to have to take on human flesh and get this done because none of us can. We all fail. And so what did God do 2,000 years ago? God the Son took on human flesh. Why? Because the promise of Genesis 3. He had to be human. It had to be a male child of Eve who conquered Satan. So God took on human flesh to do what we could not. He lived the perfect life that we have not. And then he took our sin upon himself and died on the cross finally to defeat sin and Satan and death for us. And it's the author of the book of Hebrews who really understands this. Hebrews is an incredible book. The guy had just this laser sharp focus to be able to see how the whole plan of God that began in Genesis 1 came to its fulfillment in the cross. And so you get these amazing statements in the book of Hebrews that help you see the whole thing. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children, that's us sharing flesh and blood. He, Jesus, likewise shared in their humanity. He had to become one of us. He had to take on our flesh, our bones, our humanity, so that through death, through his death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. That's Jesus fulfilling Genesis 3.15. How would the Satan, how would the, the enemy, the serpent, be crushed by God taking on human flesh and crushing him for us. But it would cost him his life. We're told later in that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now there's a big word you don't see every day. Propitiation, very churchy word. What in the world does it mean? It's actually incredibly important to you. Propitiation means to satisfy punishment that is due. So you deserve punishment from God. If someone takes that punishment for you, we say they have propitiated that punishment that you deserved. That's what Jesus did. His sacrifice propitiated sin. Now here's something that a lot of people don't understand. What was going on in the Old Testament with all those animals that died? It's throughout the Old Testament, they had like all these sacrifices they had to do. They took goats and they killed them. And they took bulls and they killed them. And they took lambs and they killed them. And they took birds and they killed them. A lot of blood shed at the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. What was all that about? Well, those sacrifices were significant. God commanded those sacrifices to be done. But here's what the author of Hebrews tells us about those sacrifices. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible 
full for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. None of them did anything about sin. They couldn't. There was no propitiation in the Old Testament. There was just a reminder. You you were killing those animals to remind you, you need a savior. Why can't a bull take away your sin? Genesis 3.15, a bull's not human. It must be a human being who dies to defeat our enemy. And so all of those countless sacrifices through the Old Testament, all they were doing was proving to the human race how desperately we needed a savior. But when Jesus came, he's one of us. He's human. He's a descendant of Eve. He has flesh and blood. He's human. And so when he died, his death counted. His death fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. He was able to pay the price of our sins. And because he was able to pay the price of our sins, we can be forgiven. And so the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 10. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice, just one, for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, all of us who are believers. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, of these sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. You don't have to go sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb. Have you ever wondered why? Why do they have to do that for thousands of years in the Old Testament and we never do that once on a Sunday morning? Because it's done. Jesus did it and that was all that was ever needed. A lot of people will wonder, so the guys in the Old Testament, David, Moses, how were they saved? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. Was it about their sac- No. Their sacrifices of animals did nothing for them. How were they saved? By the death of Jesus. God isn't limited by time. He knew it was coming. He forgave them based on the death of Jesus before it ever happened. It's always been about the death of Jesus. That was the only way. Because Genesis 3.15, it had to be a male descendant of Eve who would finally defeat our enemy and set us free from sin and death. So Jesus did that. He died to bring about propitiation, to bring about the forgiveness of all of your sins. And because all of your sins are forgiven, guess what's happened? This is one of my favorite verses in all of Matthew. I think it's awesome. Matthew 27, right after Jesus dies, just then, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It's like this minor little thing that people don't really think about. That is an unbelievably symbolically important moment. That curtain that had separated off the Holy of Holies for thousands of years ripped from top to bottom. Why? To show you the barrier is gone. The iron curtain has fallen. There is nothing separating God from his people anymore because sin has been paid for. You are forgiven. As a result, you can be welcomed back into the presence of God. You can walk with God in the cool of the day because Jesus died for your sins. We're told in in Hebrews chapter 10, back to the book of Hebrews, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, you get to go right into the Holy of Holies by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated, that he brought about for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings because we've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The cross is the fulfillment of the greatest plan in human history. God fixed what we had broken and he did it by becoming one of us so that he could take all of our punishment in our place and set us free from sin and death and Satan. So that's the plan of the cross. 
But here's a really important thing that I want to make sure you understand. The plan of the cross, the fact that the cross was part of God's plan from the very, very beginning never prevented Jesus from experiencing the pain of the cross. And and you really, you got to see both of these. You, You must see both of these together. The plan of the cross and the pain of the cross. Jesus is God, which means that he's omniscient. He's always known all things, past, present, and future. He knew about the cross from before anything even existed. And he's sovereign, which means that he allowed the cross to happen. Jesus was never a helpless victim. He could have said no at any time. And yet the fact that he is omniscient and sovereign did not spare Jesus from the pain of the cross. He experienced all of the pain of the cross. And so let me walk you through some of that pain of the cross. He experienced fear. Yes, he knew the cross was coming for infinite time. And yet look at Matthew again, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 this is right before, his betra- before Judas' betrayal. Then he, Jesus, said to the disciples, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told in the account in Luke that he was so overcome by anxiety and fear and dread that he sweat drops of blood. That's anxiety. That's fear. When I was in seminary, I had to take out a loan, which is always a scary thing when you're going into a profession that's not known for paying very highly. And so I was, I was pretty worked up over having to take out that loan. I was pretty nervous about it. But then after taking out the loan, I had a couple really bad months financially with a lot of unexpected expenses that I had to put on a credit card. And one day the bill showed up and it was more than I expected. And I looked at that bill and I realized I can't pay it now. And I have no prospects for paying this anytime soon. And I remember when the math kicked in, like when I actually added it up in my brain, I couldn't stand anymore. I fell to my knees. and I just started rocking. It was the most afraid I've ever been in my entire life. And yet in that moment of incredible fear, I never sweat blood. I I didn't start sweating blood on the ground. What does that tell me? I don't know fear like Jesus knew fear. He knew a depth of anxiety and dread that is beyond anything I have ever experienced. Even though he's God and is omniscient and sovereign, he experienced fear more than I ever have. So he experienced fear. He experienced torture. He experienced torture. Look with me at some of this account. Let's just walk through some of the the verses in this account. Look at chapter 26, verse 67. This is Jesus' arrest and trial. Then they, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. So he's getting beat up. He's just standing there as a helpless victim, getting beat up by the religious leaders. Then they send him to Pilate and his soldiers. Look at chapter 27, verse 26. This is after the trial, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourged, um, when Romans scourged people's way of punishing prisoners, they took a whip, a long leather whip that had lead balls and fragments of bone tied in the end of it, and they acted as shrapnel. That was the goal. So you were being whipped with shrapnel, and they would do it on your torso and on your back until there was no skin left together. So they just, the goal was to lay you open completely all around your entire torso. So they did that to Jesus. So he's just blood. Everywhere there's blood. And then they begin to crucify 
him. And the Romans designed crucifixion to be as painful and humiliating as possible. So after scourging Jesus, what they did is strip him naked. So everyone could see him naked. And then they put a big crossbar. He would actually have carried the the crossbeam of his crucifix. They put it on his shoulders and they forced him to walk from the palace, which was at the middle of the city. They actually crucified you outside the city. And it's not so that people wouldn't have to see it. It was actually so that everyone would see it. They marched you up on a hill so that the entire countryside could see you naked as you died. And so they marched Jesus up a hill and they put the, they had the pole there and then they, they took him on his crucifix and they nailed him through his wrists and his ankles onto the cross. And that would be very painful, but the goal was actually not to cause you so much pain that you just died. They didn't actually want you to bleed out. They would hang you on the cross that way because all of the weight would be on your diaphragm. So you you can't, they bent your knees so you could not hold up with your legs. And so you're hanging on your diaphragm. The goal is if you're hanging on your diaphragm, then you will die when your diaphragm gives out. And that usually would take many, many hours. So many, many hours you are suffocating is the idea. So crucifixion, you don't die of the nails, you die of suffocation. You drown very, very slowly over the course of many, many hours. So that's what Jesus experienced. It was a death designed by people who wanted to inflict as much pain on a person as possible. So he died naked and in pain. He experienced all of that. He's God. He's omniscient. He's sovereign. He has all power. 72,000 angels standing there ready. And yet he experienced physical pain that's beyond anything I can fathom. He experienced abandonment. We're told at the end of the garden account that we read early today, we're told that all the disciples left him. Everyone on earth abandoned him. Even Peter, who swore, I'll never leave you, Peter ran away. So Jesus was completely abandoned by human beings. He was also abandoned by God. And that's something that's hard for us to fathom. But look at Jesus' last words before he dies. It's chapter 27, verse 46. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying. So he's been hanging up there for many hours at this point. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened on the cross? Well, Jesus, God the Son, was abandoned by God the Father and God the Spirit. That's hard for us to imagine because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the Trinity. God in three persons eternally existing, enjoying perfect unity, perfect love, perfect relationship for all time. But remember what Psalm chapter 5 told us. God is too pure to dwell with sin. Habakkuk chapter one, we're told God is so pure and righteous, he can't even look at sin. And so when Jesus was hanging on the cross and your sins hung on him, God the Father and God the Spirit had to turn their backs on him. And so Jesus died utterly alone in every concept of that word, abandoned by all human beings and abandoned by God the Father and God the Spirit. He died utterly forsaken, completely alone. He was completely abandoned. And so when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, we must hold these two things in mind. Both the plan of the cross, it was not a surprise. It was not a defeat of the good guys. We have to remember the plan of the cross, but we also have to remember the pain of the cross. The fact that Jesus knew and chose this path did not prevent him from feeling all of the pain of it. Okay, now why are we talking about this today? This is not a theology exercise. It's not what this is about. It's not a history lesson. This is designed to give you truth that you need. 
truth that you need when you suffer in life. And so let me put the pieces together. Let me help you see how this fits together. The first is this, the plan and the pain of the cross, is, is your proof that God loves you more than you can imagine. When someone asks about God's love, I always take them to the cross because I want them to see. If, if you've ever wondered... If God in heaven loves you, you need to think about what the cross means. And you need both the plan and the pain. Because the plan means that Jesus knew the cross was coming for infinite time. And he chose it. No one forced him there. The pain of it, though, means that that Jesus, God, chose ahead of time to suffer all of that fear and pain and abandonment for you. He did it for you. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He wanted to do that for you. Why? So that you could be forgiven and be restored back to Genesis 1. Walking with God face to face in the cool of the day. Jesus wants you to walk with him face to face in the cool of the day for all eternity. And so he took that pain on your behalf. And that's the good news of the gospel. When we're telling people the gospel, we're not trying to force them to become part of our religion. Who cares about that? What we're doing is trying to help them come to know this incredibly good news. That there is actually a God in heaven who created them and loves them so much that he was willing to suffer unbelievable pain so that they could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. Heaven isn't something you work for. Relationship with God isn't something you earn. Jesus did it all so that you can have it for free. That's the good news of the gospel. So we, we face the plan and the pain of the cross because it's the proof that we need that there's a God in heaven who loves us more than we can fathom. The second reason that we study these truths is because this is what gives us hope when we suffer. You will suffer. All people suffer. If you've not suffered yet, it's just because you haven't lived long enough yet. It will come. All people suffer in this life. When you suffer, you need to remember Both the plan and the pain of the cross. You need to remember the plan of the cross because it reminds you that God has a plan for your suffering. Now let's be clear. God does not create suffering. What does he create? Genesis 1. Very good. Suffering is a result of pain and evil and sin that we have chosen over the course of human history. But God allows that suffering to happen because in his goodness and power and wisdom, he sees how he can bring incredible good out of it, just like he brought out of Jesus' suffering. God has a plan that includes your suffering that's going to bring about your good, and you can trust him when you suffer. The plan of the cross is your reminder that God has a plan for your suffering. He will not allow it to be wasted. That's one of my great hopes in life. God did not create my suffering, but he has a plan big enough that assures me my suffering won't go to waste. Good will come of it because God is good enough to make that happen. And so the plan of the cross gives me hope, but also the pain of the cross gives me hope. Because if all we had was the plan and not the pain, then it would be easy to think of God as a jerk up in the sky. This jerk up there who's playing a big chess game with your life and he's just moving around the pieces to make you live the life that he wants you to live. Oh, okay, here's some suffering. Let's see what we'll get out of this. All right, boom, boom, boom. The fact that Jesus experienced all the pain of the cross means that's not your God. The the pain of the cross is a reminder to you that, that Jesus has already felt all of the pain you're going through. 
He's not this chess player up in the sky having fun. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. You hate the feeling of anxiety, so does Jesus. He wasn't enjoying blood falling from him during his incredible moment of anxiety in the garden. You hate physical pain, so did Jesus. He didn't like getting ripped apart by a whip. He didn't like the nails going through. He didn't like slowly suffocating on a cross. He hates physical pain. You hate being abandoned by people, so does Jesus. He knows exactly what that feels like, to be abandoned by everyone. When you suffer, you cry out, why God, why? That's exactly what Jesus cried out. Why God, why have you forsaken me? When you yell out to God, know that Jesus did first. He knows exactly what that feels like because he's been through it all. And so Jesus is not this chess player in the sky. He is like an older brother that has been through it all before and now he has his arm around you to to comfort you and to help you through what he has already experienced in full. We have this amazing passage again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four. For we do not have a high priest up in heaven incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. That would be the grand chess player just playing a game with your life. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Therefore let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Here's the remarkable thing to me. Unlike when we suffer, when Jesus suffered, he was utterly alone. When he was on the cross, even God turned his back on him. When you suffer, you are never alone. Because Jesus is with you. You will never be abandoned like Jesus was. Because even if every other human being leaves you, you have God next to you. You have Jesus comforting you, with you. He suffered alone, so you will never have to. He suffered alone so that you would always have a companion by your side who has been through it all before. When you see the the plan of the cross, that it was planned this way in God's wisdom and sovereignty and might from all time, and you see the pain of the cross, that God's son suffered fear and pain and abandonment. You find strength. You find hope that can get you through your suffering. You have a God who understands and who is with you when you need help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your plan. We praise you and we thank you that the crucifixion was not an accident of history. It was not a defeat for the good guys. It was exactly what you intended from before time began. Your plan came together in perfection and because of your plan, because you, Jesus, took on human flesh and died in our place, you defeated Satan and sin and death once and for all so that we could be forgiven and could be your children once again and could walk with you face to face in the cool of the day and rule your universe on your behalf. We praise you and we thank you for your marvelous plan that came together at the cross. But Lord Jesus, we also We praise you and we thank you that you were willing to suffer that plan. Because just just because you knew that it was coming, just because you are God and have all power and all knowledge and all authority, that did not spare you from the unimaginable pain of the crucifixion. And we praise you and we thank you that you were willing to suffer that for us. We rarely get to choose whether or not we suffer. You did get to choose. 
And you said yes out of love for us and we thank you and praise you for that. We pray for anyone here who's not yet come to understand that incredibly good news. Help them to say yes to you. Help them to believe. For those of us who have believed, I pray that when life disappoints us, when we are in pain, when we struggle, when we suffer, I pray that you would help us to look to you, Jesus, to see you on the cross and remember that that was all part of the plan, that you suffered that pain willingly for us and that as a result, you are now with us. You understand completely what we're going through. We pray for anyone in this room this morning who is suffering, who is in pain. We pray that they would believe that you are with them, Lord Jesus whether they can feel your presence or not, help them to take it on faith, that your arm is around them, that you understand completely, and that you are there to give them help and mercy in their time of need. We praise you and thank you for the Savior you are, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.